We're partway through a series that we've been doing on the subject of relationships, and we began in the first talk, we talked about the subject of biblical marriage, and in that same talk, we also touched on the subject of divorce. Last time, we looked at singleness with the help of some wonderful single people. If you missed either of those two talks, I'd recommend the website, the audio, the video, you might want to catch up on that. And we're going to finish the series next time I speak, looking at thriving in relationships generally. Today, Deb and I will be speaking together. We'll be focusing on marriage and talking from a practical perspective. And so whilst tonight's talk is primarily going to be relevant to married people, our hope is that it will also be relevant to single people. Because most of the principles we'll be talking about today will actually apply to all sorts of relationships. And just like understanding the issues that single people face helps us as a church support those who are single, so understanding the issues that married people face is going to help us as a church to support those who are married. Now, we found some apparently true answers from children who are asked questions about love and marriage. So the first question was, what is the proper age to get married? Judy, who's eight years old, she replied, 84, because at that age... You don't have to work anymore, and you can spend all the time loving each other in your bedroom. <laughs> they were asked, is it better to be single or married? Lynette, who was nine years old, said this, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. Kenny, who was seven, said this. It gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Another question was how to make love endure. And uh, Randy, who's eight, he said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take the rubbish out. And lastly, from Roger, who is eight, don't forget your wife's name. That will mess up the love. In the first talk in the series, I said that marriage is a sign, it's a symbol of the mystical union between Christ and his bride, the church. It's a foretaste of what God intends for every one of us. And I said then that the main point of marriage is to help us grasp the passionate nature of God's love for his people. N.T. Wright wrote this of marriage, this faithful and joyful mutual love of man and woman is no social convention, no accident, no genetic quirk. It is a sign of what our wise creator intends for the whole of creation. We're all part of the eternal significance of Christ and his bride. Everybody gets to participate in this. And he goes on, marriage is hilarious, laugh with it. Marriage is serious, stand in awe of it. Marriage is hard work. Get on with it. Marriage is a celebration. Drink to it. Marriage is a gift. Thank God for it. Marriage is a signpost. Raise and maintain it for the rest of the world to see it. So we're going to give you six sort of top tips. Now, for some of you here, there may be nothing new, 
For others, there may be something, just something that you can take home. For others, there'll be some really interesting points made. But we do realize that some people, even in this room, may be in the midst of a really, really difficult time in your marriage, even a crisis point. And uh, so, in a sense, this is only going to scratch the surface. But we want you to know that we really care and that there are people who can help. That uh, if you would start by talking to your small group leader, they may refer you to our pastoral care department. There are books, there are people, there are professionals that you could be referred to. There is help and there is hope. We have seen marriages that have been on the brink of breakup restored. So, as we said, they're just our top tips, and John's going to get going with the first one. Falling in love is relatively easy. Staying in love is relatively hard. It takes work. It takes commitment. Debbie and I have been together for over 36 years, and uh, before I married Debbie, who was 32 years ago, my dad said to me, marriage holds love together. Not as you might suppose, the other way around, that love holds marriage together. No, marriage holds love together. Marriage, this covenant relationship where two people promise to love each other for life, holds it, that love together. Because, you know, we're staying together. We are staying together. No matter what challenges come our way, Debbie and I will be together till death do us part. If a couple was just living together, statistics show that they're far more likely to give up on that relationship. There's a potential out because it's not held together within this institution called marriage. Sometimes I get to have a conversation with a couple that's recently been married. They've been on their honeymoon. They've come back, and I catch up with them somewhere around there probably at the back. And I say, How's marriage, how is married life treating you? And as they answer me, I sense perhaps they feel they probably ought to give me an answer that includes the phrase married bliss. They feel that somehow to honor their partner, they need to talk about just how incredibly wonderful it is that they are now married. And um, that's the expected answer. But it's often not the actual experience. Even on the honeymoon, they discovered that married life is challenging. It is hard. And the good thing to know, whether you're single or married, is it is normal to find marriage hard. Our first year of marriage was pretty tough as we negotiated the very complex terrain of sharing life together. And we had had no premarital training whatsoever. We had not even had a brief chat with a pastor. We didn't even read a book about marriage. We went in it completely blind, and so we discovered how to get along the hard way. So today we're going to share with you some tips which we really could have benefited from someone giving us 32 years ago. The first tip is this. Put God before each other. A friend of mine, when he proposed to the woman he went on to marry and has been married now for decades, he said, darling, I want you to know that you are not the most important person in my life. <laughs> Doesn't sound terribly romantic, does it, as a proposal line, but he said, look, God is in first place, and as long as you're okay being second, we have a great future together. Our ultimate focus in life needs to be God not a happy marriage, not each other, and of course certainly not ourselves. It's through ensuring that God is in first place that a really thriving, happy marriage is possible. We look to Him to meet our needs rather than reaching into each other, another frail human being, to get our needs met. And it's as we grow in our relationship with Him that we become more like Him. We become less selfish, 
more outward-looking, more generous, more forgiving. We become more kind. The Bible talks about sowing to please the Holy Spirit, putting God in first place as our, our goal. We sow to, to the Spirit, and the Bible says we reap, and what we reap is fruit. And that fruit, just listen to the fruit, and uh, imagine somebody, a marriage partner, who would exhibit these qualities. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And by far the best marriage partner is going to be someone growing in those qualities. So the second one is put each other before the rest. Now, Paul the Apostle, he wrote to the churches on the subject of marriage, and he said, I wish you were single like me, because then you wouldn't have to put your families, your husband, your wife first, you know, so that he could get on with God's work. But to those who are married, he says, you have to make those relationships very, very important. And so put each other before the rest, even before your children. Do you know, we realized that we didn't want our children to have the burden of thinking that they were more important to us than each other. I wanted our children to grow up free, to fly the nest, to, to do that, you know, to, to do work out their relationship with the Lord and where he would take them and not feel that they somehow had to look back and take care of us. Now, one day that may reverse and they may have to do their duty and look after us a bit, but certainly they need to know that, that they are not the most important people in our lives, that we, our marriage comes first. Of course, if there was an issue with one of us treating our children badly, something like that, then of course we would have to think differently. Um, but uh, we just would recommend that you put each other before the rest, before ministry, before work, before profession. Years ago, John went to work for a homeless organization and many of the staff there were working incredibly hard. They were working sometimes between 18 and 20 hours a day. And John said to them very early on, he said, this is the basis on which I'll come and work for you. God comes first, then my wife, then this organization. Later on, we came across what was called a vineyard pathology report. Uh, somebody had done some research to find out why vineyard church plants had failed. And one of the key reasons was that the husband and wife didn't feel a joint calling to ministry. And therefore, the, the, the journey for them had been fraught with, with tension and anxiety. And in fact, many wives talked about the church had become the mistress. So we need to um, invest in our marriages and put that relationship before the others. Do you know, investing an evening with your spouse is as spiritual as writing a sermon. If God has entrusted you with a marriage partner, he's asked you to be a good steward of that entrustment. You may, may, you may have to make choices about the kind of work that you do, about the kind of friends you hang out with, how much time you spend with friends that aren't mutual friends, uh, about taking a promotion, about moving city. And also, you may have to find yourselves forgiving again and again. My, um, sorry, John's uncle discovered um, shortly into his marriage, I think it was on his honeymoon, his wife said to him, if I ever get pregnant, I will take my life. I mean, that is a terrible thing to say after you're married. 
And uh, yet John's uncle chose to forgive her and chose to accept that. And yet every time his brother had a child, you know, John and his brothers, it was like salt in the wound because he would have loved to have had children. And yet he forgave again and again. And they did go on to have a very happy and fulfilling marriage. In fact, when uh, we celebrated their lives and their, at their funerals, you know, so many people said what an amazing couple they were, how, how they ministered to their neighbors, how they uh, looked after other people's children. They made it a happy marriage, but there was an awful lot to forgive there. The third point is this, understand each other, understand each other. In 1 Peter, Peter is writing in his letter, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. And it's important for married men to understand their wives, and indeed vice versa, because life goes much more smoothly if we do. Now, a lot of study has been done on the science of understanding a woman. It's a really complex subject, and men have spent considerable time and energy in trying to solve the mystery. Now, I found this amusing picture of one such theory written out on a blackboard at a lecture. It's called Understanding Women 101. Don't know whether you can see the detail there of all the diagrams and words on that board, but that is just the 101, the first class on understanding a woman. It's a subject which, to some extent, will remain a mystery to many men if not all of us, but it is worth the effort. Women are marvelous creatures, and God designed them to fascinate men, to challenge men, to enrich their lives. And married men will never get bored if they are willing to commit to growing in understanding their wife. It's a lifelong, whatever, you know, venture to try and understand. There is a prayer that some of you will have heard. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, a monk from the 13th century. He prayed this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. Understanding someone else is a challenge. It, it really doesn't come very naturally to us. Men and women are very different. That's actually what potentially makes a marriage relationship so rich. Opposites attract. But after a while, that endearing thing can become that irritating thing. The very thing which attracted you could be the very same thing that shortly after that begins to annoy you. For instance, she may be very organized, very ordered, and she loves his spontaneity, just the excitement of having him around. He's so spontaneous. You know, I love that nothing is ever predictable when he's around. It's such a breath of fresh air. Yes, except the breath of fresh air when it's blowing constantly can become a whirlwind and it can end up driving you mad. At the same time, that highly spontaneous man was drawn to this well-organized, sensible, frugal, you know, sensible with money, the whole thing ordered, the diary was, you know, drawn to her. But she's so constraining now that I've been married, you know, for a period of time. You can see opposites attract, and some of these things can uh, create tensions. I've enjoyed watching some videos by a guy called Mark Gangan. He's a pastor, leads a church. He also teaches marriage seminars, and they're called Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. I bought the DVD. You can actually see pretty much all of it on YouTube if you just type it in there. But uh, fascinating. Now, I don't agree with everything he says. 
And he certainly risks offending some people with the colorful way that he puts his points across. But I would still recommend that DVD or access on YouTube to married couples who want to understand each other better. So here's a clip of Mark talking about the difference between male and female brains. And he introduces it by saying, look, I am caricaturing here. I'm talking stereotypes. These observations don't fit everyone, so please don't take it too seriously. We're going to start discussing men's brains, women's brains, and how they're very different from each other. Now, I want to start with men's brains. All right? Now, men's brains are, are very unique. Men's brains are made up of little boxes. And we have a box for everything. We've got a box for the car. We've got a box for the money. We've got a box for the job. We've got a box for you. We've got a box for the kids. We've got a box for your mother somewhere in the basement. We got... We got <laughs> We, we got boxes everywhere. And, and the rule is, the boxes don't touch. <laughs> when a man discusses a particular subject, we go to that particular box, we pull that box out, we open the box, we discuss only what is in that box. All right? And, and, and then we close the box and put it away being very, very careful not to touch any other boxes. different from men's brains. Women's brains are made up of a big ball of wire. And everything is connected to everything. The money's connected to the car, and the car's connected to your job, and your kids are connected to your mother, and everything's connected to everything. It's like the internet superhighway, okay? <laughs> and, and it's all driven by energy that we call emotion. And it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why women tend to remember everything. <laughs> because if you take an event and you connect it to an emotion, it burns in your memory and you can remember it forever. The same thing happens for men. It just doesn't happen very often because, quite frankly, we don't care. <laughs> uh, women tend to care about everything. And she just loves it. <laughs> Now, men, we have a box in our brain that most women are not aware of. This particular box has nothing in it. 
true. It's true. In fact, we call it the nothing box. And of all the boxes a man has in his brain, the nothing box is our favorite box. If a man has a chance, he'll go to his nothing box every time. That's why a man can do something seemingly completely brain dead for hours on end. In our marriage, as well as with the staff that we work with, we've found that understanding personalities and differences is really, really helpful. Understanding yourself. We've tried Myers-Briggs and Colors and Strengths Finders and other things. And life is more enjoyable when we understand ourselves and we understand other people better. So this is just one lens, personality types, but it's really helped us. It's really helped other married couples we know to understand each other. And you have those aha moments. You say, ah, it's not because you're bad. It's simply because you're wired differently to me. Now I understand something at a deeper level. One initial tension in our first year was, what time is bedtime? And Debbie tended to go to bed later than me and to get up later than me as well. And so bedtime also for Debbie was time to talk about all the issues that we'd not talked about into the small hours. And sometimes Debbie felt listened to and she got everything off her chest. So she then went to sleep at peace because she'd expressed everything. And I then was like wound up because all these things were now uh, laid upon me. So uh, other times she detected my grunts were indicating that I was actually no longer conscious. Over the years, we have grown to understand each other enough for us to talk about important things before going to bed. When four years into our marriage, we uh, were living in California, we did our first ever marriage enrichment event. It was a course, and we, it didn't feel very enriching, to be honest, at one particular point. We were talking about goal setting and shared goals, and it exposed differing expectations of a number of things, including particularly what a functioning kitchen was. Our first house was about six miles from here. It was in Netherfield, and when we bought it, the kitchen floor was quarry tiles on earth, and so it was very damp and so on. So I ripped all that up. I laid a concrete floor, and um, in the next three years, I just didn't get around to actually covering that concrete floor with liner or flooring or anything like that. So basically, it was concrete. You just had to sweep it every day, you know, a bit of dust. No worries. The kitchen units, I built that kitchen and I found the units in a skip. I took them, I stripped them, I varnished them, I made even a marble top for one of them, and I built this kitchen. The only problem was that there was no bottom shelf in any of the units. And, you know, that was a problem because saucepans and pots and stuff were laid on the concrete floor, together with the various little snail trails and things like that. And um, Debbie said, I want, I want some shelves in my cupboards. I want some bottom shelves. And I was resistant. We went for a walk following this session, and we just basically had a row for about half an hour. I was resistant. I'm thinking, you know, I don't think it's that important. I've built you this beautiful kitchen. You know, it's basic, yes, but, you know, Paul talks about being content in all things and, and all this sort of thing. What, what more do you want? I didn't realize that it was so important, uh, but I did by the end of it, I can assure you. Uh, <laughs> And I never got the chance to make that one right because we moved back from California, back to Nottingham. We moved out of that house just two weeks later. 
I wish I'd understood it, really understood it three years before because I could have sorted that problem out. So since then, I have made sure that subsequent kitchens have been much nicer. <laughs> well, um, are we on the fourth point, John? Yes, okay. Sorry, getting my notes mixed up. So the fourth one is serving each other. Marriage is an otherly relationship. It's about serving each other in lots of practical ways, but it's also about serving each other so that, they, so that you can be, you can help the other one be all that they are meant to be. I want John to fulfill his calling. I want him to thrive. I want him to be, I want the best for him. And I want to be able to meet his needs. Now, it took me a while to figure out there's a difference between love and needs. I need a lot of things. I need John's love. I need him to serve me. I need him to do and fulfill a lot of things in my life. But what if there came a point where he wouldn't be able to do that? What if he was struck with some sickness, some disability, and I would have to look after him and he wouldn't be able to meet my needs anymore? You see, real love, the kind of love that we need to grow in, that we are... Um, that the Lord is asking us to grow in in marriage is a love that is not self-seeking. It's a love that is unconditional. It loves when no needs are being met. Now, there's a wonderful book by Willard F. Harley. It's called His Needs, Her Needs. Now, it's a really good book because, because I love John and because he loves me, I want to meet John's needs. I want to fulfill some of those expectations. But it's not about any either of us demanding that the other one fit, um, fulfill those needs. Loving your partner is not based on his or her meeting your needs. Loving them means sacrificing some of what I need. And that is incredibly hard. Every day it's hard. Now, John enjoys the outdoors. He actually really thrives uh, going outdoors, especially when the weather's lovely. I really value being able to process my emotions and my thoughts and my ideas incessantly and externally. And I really need him to listen to me. And John listens really well. But we recently had a really big conflict over this issue. We had been asked to go to an evangelism conference, and there were some key leaders from around the nation attending this conference in the Lake District. Beautiful place. But there was a lot going on here, a lot going on with our new role that's developing. There's a lot to think about, a lot to plan, a lot of decisions to make, a lot of external processing to be done. And uh, so I said to John, I don't think we can go. In fact, I, I just can't face it. So John said, no, well, he, he'll go alone. And then he said do you know, it's in the Lake District. I'm going to stay a couple of days and have two days on my own just out in the outdoors. Well, I flipped. I was really upset. What do you mean you're going to leave me? I, you know, I need you to come back. You will have already been away for two days. We've got so much to think about, so much to plan. I feel abandoned. I feel you're not there for me. And on and on I went. Anyway, by the end of it, John had sort of said, well, look, all right, I won't, I won't go for that long. And maybe I'll, do, I'll stay a little time, but I'll, I'll come home earlier than, than I thought. And then actually after a while, I thought, no, no, I should let you go. No, you want to go. I should let you go. And so we kind of thought we communicated. But in the end, John came up a lot came back a lot earlier than I thought. And then he started telling me how when he got to the outdoors, how he was just singing out to the Lord. He was singing in tongues. He was connecting with the Lord. It was amazing. And I felt terrible. I felt absolutely terrible that I had made him come home early. You see, in marriage, we're there to serve each other. We're there to challenge each other, to shape each other, to become more like Jesus. We challenge each other in the way we relate to others. 
When our children were little and I was exhausted and exasperated and I wanted them to be disciplined ever so severely, <laughs> my John would say to me, don't exasperate them. You know, the scriptures say we're not to exasperate our children. Every so often, I would remind John, have you called your mother? Have you talked to her recently? You know, we are just, we're shaping each other. We're serving each other so that we would become more Christ-like. Now, John and I fall into fairly stereotypical roles when it comes to serving in practical ways. John looks after the finances. He takes the bins out. He looks after the car, the garden. He does the decorating, the washing up. He takes the bottles to the tip. And that's how I feel served. Now, I do some of the things that a lot of women do. I shop for food. I do most of the cooking. I look after the laundry. Christmas mostly falls to me. But you know something? Um, most men might say, and I'm generalizing, they couldn't give a fig whether the house is tidy. They don't really mind if the meal is not served on time. What they really want, they feel served when there is an attitude, an act of willing sex. <laughs> now, sex is fraught with challenges. Uh, there are seasons that change. You know, when women have babies, they're they can be very tired. Children can become a, a huge focus in a, in a marriage where, you know, when the children are born. And also, it's really connected to the emotions, just like um, he said about the brain. You know, it, we're just so emotional, women, and any little thing can just upset us and, and cause problems in this area. And sadly, for many marriages, when they are secure, secure in love, they can tend to be a bit lazy and think they can afford to drop sex. But you know, it is a decision to serve one another. And mostly for women, it is a decision. Now, I know that sex in this culture is not straightforward as an issue. Some of you may not understand at all what I'm talking about if you're not married. But it's interesting in our culture. Before marriage, it's all about how do you resist having sex? How can you possibly resist it? After you're married, it's like, Folks, keep having sex. It's really important for your marriage. But you know something? It isn't straightforward because we live in a sex-mad culture. It isn't always a libido issue or a laziness issue. God created us to enjoy sex, and he put sex in a very safe place in the context of marriage, a lifelong committed relationship. Private, where we can be vulnerable with each other. It's beautiful. It's precious. It's incredibly valuable. But we live under hyped media expectations. There's very few films that you can watch these days that doesn't have a sex scene, and we, and we watch it and you just think, that's what I've got to live up to. It's, it affects our body image. You know, so many come together married, both men and women, with ideas about the way their bodies should look that is not normal. We may come to marriage damaged from abuse that we've suffered in our backgrounds, and we bring that brokenness to our marriage relationship. The effects of being sexually promiscuous, having sex outside of marriage, and starting really young where you're just discarded, you know, you're just dropped like a piece of rubbish, one night stands, and they're so damaging to your soul. And that is not what God intended. Do you know, um, even Russell Brand these days, who is known to be a self-confessed sex addict, he talks about pornography and the damaging effects of pornography on our culture. Many of you, many in this room are suffering from addiction to pornography. Do you know, the exposure to the sexual content that has more and more perverse images, it, it, it gives you diminishing returns. It's like any addiction. You know, you have to have more and more stimulus. And then normal, healthy sex does not satisfy anymore. Like any addiction, it ends up robbing you of the joy that God intended sex to be, one man, one woman, in the context of a lifelong relationship.
Now, research tells us that orgasms connect you to the object of your focus. So whatever you have in your mind at that time, you become connected to it. So if time and time again you are connecting to something perverse, something that isn't your husband or wife, then you are detaching uh, from the person that you are having a lifelong relationship with. And the same is that it, the more sex you have, the more orgasms you have uh, as a married couple, the more it stimulates love. That's, you know, God, is, God knows exactly what he's doing to help us last in our marriages. So we, I know that our culture is taking a hefty toll on many marriages. And, you know, I want to reiterate again, God can help us. God is for us. He wants to help us. He wants to help us make decisions to work at this. There is our professionals. There are people who are gifted at helping us uh, improve in our sexual relationships within marriage. And, uh, you know, again, I would recommend you, you talk, you find someone to talk to about this, somebody older, somebody who's married, your small group leader, and we can begin to help you in that process. The last one from me tonight is this. Resolve conflict with each other. Conflict can be actually very productive. It can be healthy, but it needs to be done with care. And our background differences can affect the way that we handle conflict. So as we came into marriage, Debbie was used to very heartfelt and honest conflict that sought resolution and understanding. She was one of four daughters. They, she grew up in South America for the first 13 years of, your life, of her life. And she is basically South American in the way that she expresses emotion and passion. And um, quite, quite uh, happy to have conflict and really quite heated sometimes. In my family, conflict wasn't handled so well. To have conflict with my dad particularly wasn't easy. And so my brothers and my mother tended to skirt issues to avoid conflict or occasionally would push back, which then escalated into heated argument and invariably ended with the conversation being shut down and the issue being left unresolved. So I grew up learning to suppress my feelings and I tend to find it difficult to articulate them. And so Debbie and me bringing such different ways of approaching conflict into our relationship did mean challenges for us. And it took us a few years to really work out how to even begin to do conflict well. Sometimes a late night argument, which wasn't resolving, uh, would mean Debbie would then get up and leave our bedroom in tears. She would go into a bed in another room and whimper so I could hear through the wall hoping that I would get up and I would go and find her and we would make up. I stubbornly folded my arms and stayed in bed, <laughs> figuring that she would stop being so childish at some point and come back to bed. Now that probably, to my shame, I confess it wasn't probably the best tactic in resolving those conflicts. One thing that I've come to realize about conflict, and this is quite profound and some of you may think, I never thought of that. Given there are two of us, the chances are pretty high that if we are disagreeing about something, I'm going to be wrong around half the time, quite possibly more. Now, neither of us sees it that way at the time, of course. We both think our perspective is the right one. And so in a conflict situation, the temptation is to fight to win, to entrench in one's own point of view and try and persuade the other that they are wrong. And that would be my tendency. I am competitive as a person and I like to be right. That's not a good combination in conflict resolution. But in a marriage, as in relationships generally, there being a winner usually means there's going to be a loser. 
and you're on the same side. You want the best outcome. Both of you do. And emotions can cloud the way forward. And so I'm learning slowly that it's worth trying to stand back for a moment and just think, what do I want the outcome of this conflict to be? To win. That's what I want it to be. Okay, no, no, stop for a moment. Just step back a little further than that. Say, what do I want the outcome to be? Unity. I want us to reach the best solution. And I want my wife to love me more rather than less than she did before we entered this conflict. So we have a relational account uh, in a marriage, let's call it a love bank. And the full of that love bank is the more fulfilling our marriage will be. And we can invest in the relationship, we can make deposits in that bank account, but conflict tends to make withdrawals. And I realize that it's often my pride which drives me to try and win the argument. I'm propping up my self-worth by being right and pressing Debbie to say I'm right. But what if, here's just a creative thought I share with you, what if I tried to get into her shoes for a moment and try to actually understand what she is saying instead of simply rebuffing it? To admit, okay, I see what you're saying there. Perhaps I have been overstating my case. And sometimes, though I passionately believe that I am in fact right and Debbie is wrong on the thing that we're arguing over, how about still letting it go? My options may be, you see, to win the argument and make a huge withdrawal from the love bank or just let it go and stop the damage. I don't mean we should skirt over important issues and not truly resolve conflict. I just mean sometimes just not having to win, even when I think I could. Win their heart, not the argument. Now, I would do well to go on the website and listen to this little section about monthly for the coming decades because it doesn't come naturally to me, but I think it's a very important point. And when our spouse does hurt us by saying something or not saying something or by doing something or by not doing something, it is really, really important to forgive. Unforgiveness in a marriage will eat away at that relationship. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about brushing over ongoing abusive behaviors, which need to be properly addressed and dealt with. I'm talking about the reality that two people who love each other will inevitably hurt each other. And love says, let it go. Let the other person off the hook. Someone profoundly said, a successful marriage is the union of two great forgivers. So lastly, the last point is care for each other. Now, one of the primary ways in which we can care for each other is how we invest our time. How do we use our time to invest in our marriage? Now, when our children were little and uh, most of our babysitters were used up for church events. And so we would uh, kind of book in a date night uh, to have once a week with each other. And uh, I would make sure that I'd arrange the whole day around the kids going to bed earlier and uh, we would put some nice things on we would make sure that we cooked a lovely meal in those days we rented in a dvd or a, a film and uh, we would make sure that that night we were going to have good sex and uh, it was just a special night in that we carved out to make sure that we were uh, making time for each other that was special now as time went on 
uh, we could then uh, spend more time together because the children didn't need us in the same way. We could develop, you know, we could go out walking together, we would travel together, go to movies together, shopping together. And, you know, when we were married for 20 years, on our 20-year anniversary, we went on our first holiday alone together, which we hadn't been since we'd had children. And it was fantastic. It was like a honeymoon. It was just wonderful. And after that, for the next five years, I think, we went, we made sure every year we had a holiday alone. And it was just wonderful because we were getting that time when our kids were teenagers. And actually, family holidays were becoming a little fraught because they had ideas about what they wanted to do. So there were often arguments around that time. And it wasn't the best time to go on holidays together. Now, we can all go on holiday together. And we can still, John and I can still have time on our own. And they can have time with their friends and it all works. Now, even now, we have to make sure that we have time to talk about the things that are not just about work. And we have to check up that we are actually spending time talking about other things that aren't just about the church, and, but they're about each other. But you know something? When John appears at my office door, I work in the house, and I have an office upstairs, and John has an office at the bottom of the garden. But when he kind of troops along upstairs, and I can sense he's coming up the stairs, my heart starts to race. I still feel excited that he's coming to talk to me about something. Now, I want to encourage you to develop shared common interests. It's so easy to, to be married and then have so many other interests that you don't share in common. Of course, our faith is something that we share together. But then, you know, how are we going to use our home? We had to make decisions about, you know, not, it's not, I'm not just talking about how we decorate our home and how beautiful it is, but, but how is it going to be used? Are we going to have the kind of home where we're going to invite people in for meals? Are we going to have a young homeless person come and stay with us every so often? You know, are we going to use our home um, in a way that the family feel they want to keep coming back and that it's not just about John and, John and I and that we've, that's it, they've gone and we don't want them to come back again? You know, how are we going to use our home? Now, John and I, we love antique shopping. I mean, it's actually rubbish shopping, but we like to sort of rebuild and, uh, uh, you know, re restore things. We love good food, books, our family, shared friends, box sets, art exhibitions, and we love shopping for clothes together. But we also take an interest and we care about the things that maybe we don't share, but John has a bike, he loves biking, and I am delighted that he enjoys that. Every so often I might go on the back if there's a pub lunch at the end, but it's very rare. Uh, he also enjoys whiskey. I mean, he has a collection of whiskey, and he has a bunch of friends who, you know, every so often they, they turn up and the whiskey's all over the table, about 30 different ones. They're looking at some uh, program on the laptop that's telling them all about some in-depth piece of information. Utterly boring. I just cannot believe they're spending the whole evening talking about whiskey. Uh, but I love it. I love that he has that interest. I love nothing more than going for a massage. I mean, it I love the experience. And John books me in for one. He surprises me with massages, and uh, I just love that. Another thing, another way in which we care for each other is to be present. Now, sometimes we're so busy doing other things, we, we, we don't spend time together. But even when we're spending time together, it is possible to be there but not actually be emotionally and uh, present, mentally and emotionally. Sometimes you can be in the same house, in the same room, and you're not actually connecting. 
But there are also relationships who may find that they spend a considerable amount of time away from each other, like people whose husbands or wives are in the military, and they can't spend time together, but they know they're emotionally uh, and mentally connected. You know by the emails and the letters and the, uh, you know, the FaceTimes and those communications that there really is a connection, and it's amazing how those relationships survive. And yet another couple could be living in the same home and be disconnected. Another way to care for each other is looking at how you invest money. Now, I'm not just talking about spending on each other. That's a lovely thing to do, but it's recognizing that money can be a real tension point. You have different ways of spending money, and it's important to look at this issue together because it can really gnaw away at your marriage. You may or may not choose to have a shared account. We have a shared account. But the issue there is trust. You know, uh, are you, is there accountability in the way that each other is spending money? Um, do you have a budget? When we were younger, money was very, very tight. We worked out what was important. We worked out how, which ones of us were going to be responsible for what. We agreed on giving. We agreed on how much we were going to spend, on saving. We both kept an eye on it. Nothing was hidden. And uh, we just didn't want this to be a tension point or a point of conflict. Money often points to priorities. You know, we all have them. When we look at our bank statement, we can see what's important to each of us. And we need to make sure that we're both in agreement. Now, John and I love to be frugal. We, we get a thrill when we save money on something. And a couple of months ago, we replaced our Saab. Uh, now, it's the fourth Saab that we've had in 22 years. And we bought a 12-year-old Saab, and we paid £5,500 for it. But it is a lot of car for what we paid. It was the previous owner's passion. It was his pride and joy. And in fact, he spent over £25,000 on it. Every part that could be replaced was replaced with a better one. No expense was spared, and it was a ridiculous and unreasonable amount of money to spend on a very ordinary car. Now, John asked the person he bought it off why the guy spent so much money on this car and then sold it within just a couple of years for such a massive loss. And he was told some really sad news. Apparently, the man needed the money because he was going through a divorce. And, you know, we got quite sad at the thought that we were beneficiaries of someone's divorce. You know, could it have been that his passion for the car, for doing it up, was not a shared priority? And we felt really sad, you know, because sometimes hobbies get out of control. We've known marriages where there's a hobby where husband or wife just cannot stop spending, and it becomes a source of terrible conflict and can lead to marriage breakdown. Now, another way in which you can care for each other is to keep the romance alive. I mean, I think for t particularly for women, this is important. John uh, buys me flowers. I love flowers. And he's really good at choosing uh, flowers and arranging them. And he, I mean, I sometimes tweet the pictures of them because they're so beautiful. Little presents, uh, little reminders that, that he is romantically in love with me. Do you know, articulating compliments to one another, encouragement, affection... I have a, a lovely image um, in my mind, and, and it happens sort of um, kind of fairly regularly, but it may be a Sunday afternoon or uh, sometime when the boys come over to our house, and we have one of those sofas that stretches all around um, the, the, the room, and we can watch a movie. And uh, I have this picture, and there's John and I sitting together. We've been married for 
how long? Over 30 years, 32 years. And then there's Jordan and his girlfriend, very much in love, and they're kind of wrapped around each other. And then there's Zach and his wife, Lizzie, and they're sitting at the other one, and they're all wrapped around each other. And it's just so sweet to see each one of us romantically, passionately in love with those that are the most important in our lives. Um, and so, you know, I just want to uh, emphasize the, just pay attention to romance. Now, there's a great book that's been written by a guy called Gary Chapman, and it's called The Five Love Languages. Now, we all need uh, to experience all these love languages, but each of us has one that is a preferred one. And he talks about um, the language of physical touch. For some people, that is just so the most important thing, to be hugged, to be stroked, to be touched. Another one is acts of service. You know, given a lift somewhere, being picked up late at night, being, um, uh, you know, uh, it may be somebody doing the washing up for you, it may be the bed being made. I mean, all these sort of things, acts of service. It may be words of affirmation. You know, oh, that was a brilliant job you did there. I'm so pleased. Oh, my gosh, you're so clever when you do this or that. Um, it may be quality time, you know, just carving out time. This is my time for you. I'm here. I'm present. I'm mentally and emotionally present. Present. Do all the talking you need to do. You know, it's that sort of quality time. Or it may be about receiving gifts. Some of us love to receive gifts, and that's the way we feel loved. Do you know, on our deathbed, apparently, regrets won't be about wishing that we'd be more successful, that we made more money, that we wish we'd worked harder. It's disproportionately about the people, the people that we loved in our lives. Mm 